Well, the passage that we're going to be looking at this morning is from Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 23. While you're turning there, let me add one word about this chapter, and then we'll read it out loud, and then we'll read together, as you see in the bulletin. Uh, Romans chapter 1 is interesting for a variety of reasons, and let me say, I I think of it as, I think of a sobering conversation that you might have with your doctor, where a doctor sits you down and says, all right, we've got some hard news, and we have to talk about this. And sort of the demeanor of the whole room changes, but it's a conversation that has to be had. And I, and I say that to warn you because today we begin talking about the wrath of God, but especially as we transition into next week, these are not easy things to talk about. Though they be true and though they must be talked about, they are not easy. And so as we enter into Romans 1 in the coming weeks, just as a warning, sobering passages that must be talked about. And that's the content that we have in the upcoming weeks. Let me ask you if you're able to please stand as I read aloud Romans 1, 18 through 23. Would you follow along as I read this passage? For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Let me ask you also, while you remain standing, to read this passage together with me. And as a reminder, this may seem like a novel idea, but the church has for centuries confessed the word of God aloud together for the sake of memorizing the word, that it might be... uh, indwelt within us, that we might internalize it. And so as we go through Romans, we are together memorizing Scripture. So let's read Romans chapter 1, verses 16 through 17 together. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed From faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Would you please be seated, and once more would you join me in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we ask this morning that you would be with us as we look together at your word. And we know that the flowers of the field wither and the grass fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. We ask, Lord God that that enduring word would be made to dwell within us as your spirit works in us, that that we would know your word and it would have its effect on our hearts, on our minds, and on our lives, that we would be conformed to your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we ask all of this. Amen. I want to begin this morning by reading a quote. This comes from... Charles Darwin's book published in 1859, The Origin of Species, 
And I want to read the quote because I believe it helps us to set the table for the conversation that we're having in Romans chapter 1. Just give your attention really quick to this brief excerpt from that book. Here's what Charles Darwin said. He said, man, with all his noble qualities, with sympathy which feels for the most debased, with benevolence which extends not only to other men but to the humblest living creature, with his godlike intellect which is penetrated into the movements and the constitution of the solar system, with all these exalted powers, man still bears in his bodily frame the indelible stamp of his lowly origin. If you're familiar with Darwin's work, the things that he wrote, said, and did, you realize that what he's saying there is that as complex and sophisticated as humanity seems to have become, that human beings still bear, he says, an indelible mark of their lowly origin. Indelible means an unchanging and unfading mark. He's saying that when you look within and you examine externally and internally all that is true of humanity, you realize that we began, as Darwin would say, from a lowly origin, single-cell amoebas, or some primates that he postulated we evolved from. That was his conclusion. Now, what I want to tell you this morning is that I believe both the evidence and human intuition, as well as the Word of God, actually says the very opposite. And that's what we're going to see in Romans chapter 1 this morning, that as far as humanity descends into corruption, descends into chaos and ungodliness, Yet human beings bear in themselves, and they see around them, an indelible mark of their lofty origin, that they realize in the things that are observable, that we realize in the things that we see and we experience, that there is a creator and that we have been made in his image no matter how far we descend into the corruption of human nature. That's one of the very things that the Apostle Paul means to tell us this morning in Romans chapter 1. So, listen, as we begin looking at this passage, here's what we're going to do. We are going to look primarily at Romans 1, verse 18. I've I've written it on the whiteboard behind me. Now, why are we going to look at one particular verse? Because I tell you, this this is the summary of everything that follows, okay? So, from chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through chapter 3, verse 20, we are now beginning to look at man's ruin and God's wrath. This is the beginning of the story. Chapter 1, verse 18 is the introduction to all of the details that we will examine in the coming weeks. As a matter of fact, we won't get to chapter 3, verse 20 until right before Christmas, okay? So from now until Christmas, this is the verse that defines everything we will speak about. I drew a picture of a shovel Because if you remember, I told you Romans is a blueprint, and where we're at right now is simply that Paul is beginning to dig beneath the surface. He's exposing the broken terrain to begin laying the foundation for the redemption, which would be the house that is built upon Jesus Christ. But right now in chapter 1, verse 18, we're simply digging into the damage that has been done to examine the effect that it has on the human heart. 
So we look at chapter one, verse 18, and really, honestly, here's where we're going this morning. We have a few questions that have to be asked about this passage. They're all framed in this verse. So first of all, we will talk about the wrath of God. What is the wrath of God? Where's my marker? There it is. We will talk about the wrath of God. What is the wrath of God, and and why is it important to us? Okay, How does it help us to not only shape our understanding of who we are, but what God is doing uh, in, in this book? We're going to talk about the ungodliness and the unrighteousness of man for which the wrath of God is being poured out. Then the last thing we'll talk about is the, the suppression of truth. That will actually be the first thing that we talk about this morning. These three concepts in verse 18 will become the defining characteristics of the next three chapters. So let's then begin with the suppression of truth. I want to highlight a few things. First of all, the word that Paul uses here, this word uh, of speaking of all men, the Greek word anthropos, it's important because it's a generic word. Many people have postulated or supposed that when Paul begins in Romans 1, he's really talking to the Gentiles. Not so much to the Jews, but more to the Gentiles, but it's not the words that Paul uses. When he begins in Romans 1 verse 18, he speaks of all men So we have here a universal argument that's being established that all men in their unrighteousness, they suppress the truth. This is applicable to all who have been born throughout all time, men, women, children. No one is absolved of the argument of suppressing the truth, okay? So then we must ask the question, what does it mean that all men from all time, ever born, what does it mean that they suppress the truth in their unrighteousness? The word suppress interesting word. It's actually, again, it's a very generic word. It's a word that means to hold, okay? And, and it can mean, in any given context, it can mean to hold down, to hold up, to hold out, to hold over, to hold around, and you kind of have to read the context of what's being said here. As you read the context, you realize that there's a description of holding something either out or holding it down, holding out or holding down. The picture is a portrait of someone who has something and they hold it in such a way where it's not of primary concern to them. They're like, okay, this thing, I'm going to hold it over here and act like I cannot see it. Or they hold it down. They subvert it. They cover it over. That's why the word that is used here is the word suppress. Now, I want to give you a word picture. If you're wondering, what does it look like to suppress the truth? Here's a word picture I think has often been used, and I think it's a really good one. If you've ever been to the pool or the beach and you had a beach ball and maybe you got bored and you're like, what do you do with the beach ball? Well, sometimes you just take that beach ball and try and force it under the water, don't you? Okay? You've done that before, right? You try and force it under the water and that's, a, that's an act of suppression. You're, you're forcing it down. It's buoyant. It's filled with air and it will reemerge. It will force itself back to the surface, but for a time, you're able to submerge it under the water, aren't you? And maybe you get really good at it and you can hold it down there for like a minute or two before it forces its way back to the surface. This is a picture of suppression. It's the picture that's being painted as Paul introduces this problem with all of humanity that they take the truth of God like a beach ball, they force it under the water, and they try to act as as if when it's submerged by the water, as if it's not there anymore, okay? The beautiful thing about the picture is that just as the beach ball reemerges, so does the truth of God. As Paul continues to speak about the truth of God that is that is suppressed by humanity. He's speaking about a thing that is forcefully being pushed out or down, but is constantly having to be fought against by men and women. 
in all of creation, okay? So this is the suppression of truth that Paul speaks about. Now we have a lot of questions still that must be asked of the passage. For instance, what is the truth that all men suppress? All men and women who have been ever born and created who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, what does it look like? What are the things about God that they're forcing under, that they refuse to acknowledge, that they willfully subvert and disguise as if they have no responsibility to the living God? Well, that's where Paul begins to explain in verse 19. He says in verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Now, what exactly is Paul speaking about? I'll tell you, I, I like the word in verse 19, the word that is translated as plain. It is the Greek word phano, which is actually the, the, the base root word is the word that means light, a, a light, like you turn on a light. It is, the, it is now the verb form of that, of that word, and it means to illumine, to light up. The verse actually says, for what can be known about God is illumined to them. It's been lit up. It's been made visible. They can see it, for God has made it known to them. Well, how has he made it known? That's what verse 20 says. For his invisible attributes. Those are the things about God you can't see. He is a spirit. He didn't walk in this morning and say, oh, there's God. I saw God. He can't be seen with the human eye. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so they are without excuse. Now listen, that verse is so full of descriptions here, but what we realize is as we get to the end of this argument that God has made himself known, not that we can see him, but we perceive him, he leaves that verse off with a very important indictment. He says, so they are without excuse. This is, this is the argument that's being built. If God can be seen and if we can know him, if we can understand things about him, then there is a relationship that is made and is obvious to humanity so they have no excuse. Now, verse 20, how does it say that we know and perceive God? How do we know and perceive God? Verse 20, Paul's making the argument uh, in what we call general revelation, okay? He is saying that what can be known about him has been clearly seen or perceived since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. Paul's making the argument that you've been reading throughout the entire Bible, right? You pick up the Psalms and you're like, man, the Psalms are a one beautiful ongoing song about how God can be seen in all creation, right? The stars that declare his handiwork. The heavens, they speak of his majesty, Right? And you knit me and formed me in my mother's womb. Before yet a day came about, you numbered my days. Right? Every description in the Psalms is, is a description of an observation of the creation in which men and women must say, hmm, that is pretty interesting and spectacular and majestic and sophisticated and complicated. That tells me there must be a God, right? These observations, we make them every day. We look at the Blue Ridge Mountains. We say, how beautiful they are. It's like somebody made them for us to look at. We, we watch a child being born, and we say, how can that happen over nine months without anything that we had to intentionally do, right? That this baby is formed and is born, and it has sophisticated body parts, and it can fight off sickness, and it can eat amazing things that we observe in life and we look at human anatomy and we say 
wow, the complexity of the organs, how the kidneys and the liver function, the lungs, they breathe and they make blood. All of these observations that we make with our eyes are the things that leave men and women without excuse. For what can be known about God has been illumined to them. They can see it with their eyes. They have an indelible stamp on themselves that cannot be erased, that will not fade, that says, I come from a lofty origin. It seems as if some sophisticated being has made me. Okay? That's, that is the beginning of the argument that Paul is making. And so men and their unrighteousness, they, they suppress that truth. They hold it down. They try to reject it, act as if it's not there. This is what's happening in all of humanity around us. Now, I'm, I'm not going to belabor the point, but I will share with you one example, and then we'll move on. I was reading maybe about three weeks ago. I pulled up some news articles, and I found this really catchy title. I thought, I've got to read that article. The title was this, okay? Harvard professor believes godlike aliens are creating universes, okay? And that, that's a catchy title, right? That's an eye grabber. And at first I laughed, like picturing E.T., mixing you know, chemicals in a beaker and forming universe. But I read it, and I, this is um, really a, le- a legitimate argument this man has. It is a very similar to many of the things I've been reading the last few years, okay? There's a new infatuation with aliens as the source of creation. And I want to tell you why that's so interesting to me. For maybe the last hundred years, the work and movements in academia have largely been to reject creation and to support some sort of a big bang theory, okay? So there is nothing and then something, and then something that has no life turns into something with life, and then that life, which is simple, eventually becomes complicated life. And for that to happen, you need like trillions of years and some unknown force to get the ball rolling. That's been the theory for years and years and years. Well, what's happening now, if, you, if you're reading academic articles, you're finding that the more we learn, the more the scientists and the professionals are finding that, that creation is complex and sophisticated. And so this particular scientist, in observing that they're finding more and more universes and they're realizing, wow, there's like a beauty and an order to it, this particular scientist was stepping back and saying, okay, wait a second, there has to be somebody out there who's making this. And so his conclusion is, there are godlike aliens who are making universes, right? And you can chuckle, but do you know the only difference between godlike aliens and God himself? You don't owe obedience to godlike aliens, right? There's, there's no relationship. If you can say it's a godlike alien who's forming the things out there and who has got the ball rolling, you have no relationship to the almighty God. That's an easy thing to say, but the reality is he's saying, saying the same exact thing, but looking for, for a way to get around the truth. That is the obvious act of suppression of the truth of God that all human beings know, but they refuse to acknowledge. The Apostle Paul says this is where we begin with the suppression of truth in all of humanity. And so we see it in verse 18, verse 19, and 20. Second thing is the ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men for which the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. Really quick, I want to talk about these two words, ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. In the English, they appear almost to be synonyms, ungodliness and unrighteousness, but they have two distinct meanings, and I think 
their meanings are important. The ungodliness is actually a very, it's a vertical word. I'm going to write an arrow pointing up. It's a vertical word that speaks of impiety or irreverence. It is the word that means uh, within our relationship to God, there's something wrong, right? And so the obedience that we owe him and the reflection of his image and the things internal and external in all the ways that we sin against God being captured by this phrase ungodliness, okay? So that's what that word means. The second word that is translated as unrighteousness is really actually more of a horizontal word. It's the Greek word dikaios, uh, which can be translated righteous or, or just. The, uh, the alpha, the ah prefix is the, is the prefix that makes it the opposite. So it's the opposite of righteousness or the opposite of justice. And in the context, as Paul's forming this argument, we, we get the idea that here he's speaking about the horizontal brokenness of humanity. I, I would probably call it injustice, but you call it what you want. He's speaking about the relationships that we have with one another that are broken because of the fall. And so here, as the argument is being made and formed by the Apostle Paul and delivered to us, essentially what he's saying is the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the brokenness between us and God and against all the brokenness between us and us, okay? You and me. And in using these two uh, summary words, he's now given us the platform for everything that he's about to talk about next week. If you've read ahead you understand that we're about to go into a section where he talks about gossip and slander and malice and greed and lust, and he's going to go through these descriptions of both ungodliness and unrighteousness. For all of these things, the wrath of God is being revealed. And so Paul will go on, beginning in verse 21, to explain what this looks like. Now listen, if you get the feel as you read this chapter, that we're descending into a cyclical spiral of corruption, like, like a toilet that's being flushed and it's going down the drain, you're exactly right. The picture that Paul is providing is one that goes further and further and further in corruption and judgment of God, and we get that idea as we begin reading verse 21. He says in 21, for although they knew God. How did they know God? We just talked about that. Everything that he revealed about himself was plain to them. So for although they knew God, all humanity knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Now that's a, that's a really important phrase. They did not honor him or give thanks to him. The word honor is the Greek word doxa. And it really actually means to give an appropriate amount of credit. Not to give more, not to give less, just to give an appropriate amount of credit. The Apostle Paul says that although they knew God, they did not give him the appropriate amount of credit. They, they did not credit him as God. They didn't see him as God. Now you might be wondering, what does that look like? What does it look like when people, they clearly see God and they perceive him in all creation, but they do not honor him as God? I'll tell you what it looks like. Every human being has this kind of experience sometime in their life where they observe something in creation and they say, wow, well, that's pretty cool. That's kind of complicated. That's sophisticated. It's unique. It's special. Whether it be outside of them or inside of them. And Paul is telling you that at that moment when human beings make that confession in their mouth or they think it with their minds, that they don't then take the next logical step. What's the next logical step? 
The next logical step is to say, who is he and who am I to him? Okay? If I look at the Blue Ridge Mountains and I say, how majestic they are, it's not enough to observe that they're majestic. That's a great observation. But from observing the majesty of the mountains, the individual must say, who created those? And what is he to me? That's what it means to honor God. If human beings would ask that question, they would honor God appropriately because it would lead them down a pathway of revelation of the true living God and his son, Jesus Christ, and in so doing, they would honor him as God. So what does the passage say? Because they did not honor him or give thanks to him, what happens? They became futile or futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Just highlight the words there for a second. What happens when men do not honor and thank God as God? They become futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts are darkened. Claiming to be wise, they become fools. You see, there's this, there's this, perpetual cyclical spinning towards corruption that once they reject the revelation of the living God seen in creation and they do not honor him as God, their hearts become dark and they become futile in the thinking. They claim to be wise but they become fools and then they refuse to honor God and the cycle continues and for this the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. There's a cycle of perpetuation that is happening when men and women descend into sin and corruption, and it's being described in this very passage. So the Apostle Paul says, their hearts are darkened and they become fools. Let me tell you, I think one of the very important takeaways from that verse is that the mind and the heart of man is not a religious vacuum. And what I mean by that, look at that. What I mean by that is uh, that, that human beings don't suppress the truth of God, hold it aside, and then say, all right, let me approach the world with an open mind. That there is always, when there is a removal of truth, there is a replacement with lie that takes hold in the heart and it produces this, this darkened heart, this this futileness, this foolishness in the heart of man that, that produces and it, it breeds corruption. You know how I know that? This is, okay, this is an important word. You're gonna see this like 10 times in this chapter. The word is exchange, okay? You, if you've read Romans 1 out loud a few times, you know that there's a few words that really stand out. Exchange is one of them. Paul will say again and again, for they exchange, they exchange, they exchange. They exchange the truth of God. They exchange natural relations. They exchange you know, things given by God and revealed. They exchange. And what does verse 23 say about the exchange? Verse 23 says this. They exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. You see the picture that's being painted that human beings, they take the beach ball, they force it under the water, they suppress the truth of God, they cover it over, they act as if it's not there, and, and then they replace it with a lie. They do not worship or honor the living, glorious, immortal God, but they replace his worship with something else, with the image of corruptible, created things, okay? Now listen, we're going to talk about idolatry in the coming verses, so I'm not going to harp on it, but 
Isaiah's got this beautiful passage where he, he uh, rebukes the people and, and he brings out the foolishness of idolatry in just a few words. If you remember it, this is what he says. He says, you take and cut down a tree and you make for yourself a carved image and then you take the rest of the tree and you burn it for warmth. Do you not see the foolishness of your ways? You have made from the same object one thing to worship and one thing to be burned, to be warm in the fire. Isn't that the epitome of foolishness? And that is the idolatry that we all participate in our hearts apart from the work of the Spirit of God. It's the very thing for which the wrath of God is being revealed, the corruption of the human heart, which is an exchange of the truth of God for the, God for the lies of Satan. Okay, so that's the second thing. The last thing we need to talk about this morning is the wrath of God. The wrath of God. So, listen, as, as we talk about the wrath of God, it, it is, a, is a theme that will definitely present itself again and again in this book. And I want to, first of all, talk about this word, wrath. It is the Greek word, I'm just going to write it here, you might not be able to see it, but it's the Greek word, orga, which is different. There are two words for wrath in Greek, thumos and orga. Thumos is the word that means to, like, like a volcano that explodes. It means a, a, a hot impassioned wrath, and uh, it's usually sudden, and it's full of, you know, anger, not the word that's often used to describe God's wrath, okay? The word that's often used in Scripture is the word orga, which is an agricultural word. Actually, it was originally mean to, uh, it was originally a word that meant a seed pod that gets full of seeds, and then when the time is ripe, it opens up and releases the seeds, okay? So the picture that's being painted when we speak about God's wrath is of something in the character of God that is patiently, methodically building that one day is going to be opened up and poured out, all right? And, and that is the picture of the wrath of God in Scripture, okay? Let me read to you a, a quote, and, and then we'll talk about briefly the wrath of God, okay? This is from uh, D.G. Barnhouse when he was preaching on this passage. He said it like this. He said, it is perfectly and gloriously true that God is love. But it is just as true, and may I add, just as gloriously true that God is hate. Anyone who does not take account of the hatred of God has failed to comprehend one of the most important truths in all the universe. God hates sin. One of the tragedies of modern religious life is that there has been a preaching of the love of God to the exclusion of the preaching of the hatred of God. That was Barnhouse 50 years ago. The, the wrath of God as revealed in Scripture, if you want a good succinct explanation of what it is, it is the hatred of God for sin that is manifesting itself in an outward action that is His wrath, okay? That God so hates sin and anything that is tainted by sin that it builds up, it is restrained by God, but reserved for a particular place and time and group of people, okay, that is going to be poured out as judgment and condemnation on the very thing that God hates, for he is a righteous God. And so the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Let me tell you what I believe that tragedy is. Okay, and I don't think it's such a tragedy that the world doesn't understand the wrath of God. The world won't understand the wrath of God. I think the tragedy today is that the church doesn't understand the wrath of God. It is a tragedy. 
right? It's a tragedy that many modern preachers who preach from the word avoid the wrath of God or they talk about the wrath as if it doesn't exist, okay? That a lot of the Christian literature that's out there, if you read it, is either adamantly opposed to or neglects to observe the wrath of God as revealed in Scripture. I'll tell you, maybe like 10 years ago, somebody came to me and they said, hey, pastor, I've got this great new book that has been written. You've got to read it. Okay, and I was skeptical. Whenever I hear new book, I'm skeptical, okay? Um, but I like the old books, but there's still some good new books, right? So new book, you've got to read it. It's amazing. And I began reading this book, and the, the thesis statement in the first chapter was that there is really no wrath of God. And I thought, how in the world is this person like legitimately going to make a biblical argument that there is no wrath of God? And they did it, but they did it by skipping around and jumping over certain things and acting as other things don't exist. And, and the argument for anyone who had ever read their Bible, you could tell, was a piecemeal, and I'm not even going to say what it is, just a piece of garbage work trying to make an argument that cannot be found in Scripture, okay? Listen. If we were going to design a, a God for ourselves, we would, would not want a God who has wrath, right? That's just human nature, and so that's what people are doing. We don't, we don't like God like that, so we don't think God is like that, but the reality is that, that God has revealed himself in such a way that the only way we get around this is through some linguistic gymnastics, and we have to squint one eye and read only certain passages, and we have to skip texts like this because the wrath of God is so plainly revealed in Scripture that he hates sin, and that in a patient building up, the wrath of God is being stored for a day of judgment against all unrighteousness and ungodliness that all men are under condemnation. Let me tell you something just briefly about the wrath of God. If you don't understand or acknowledge that there is the wrath of God revealed in Scripture against all ungodliness and unrighteousness, you won't understand the rest of this book, okay? You can sit here and read it with us, and we could talk about it together, and you could be with us for three years, and we could talk about what it means that Christ came to die for sinners, and we could talk about what it means that God so loved us and that he called us from the foundation of the world, but if you don't understand the wrath of God, you will not understand the salvation that is offered to you. In the epistle to the Romans or in the gospel of Jesus Christ, you won't understand it. I want to encourage you, if this, is, if this is strange to you or it's new or you're like, oh, the wrath of God is uncomfortable to me, just hang with us, okay? The wrath of God, again, is the digging into the dirt to lay the foundation for the house that is being built in Jesus Christ. If you truly are to understand the good news, you must first understand the wrath of God that is being poured out against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. For we are rebels against the living God, and he is a righteous God. Now listen, the last thing I want to tell you about this, very simply, for any of you who have ever studied the life of Martin Luther, you know that Martin Luther came to be a Christian or came to have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ through reading the, the epistle to the Romans. Martin Luther's story is amazing. He was a monk, and he was studying to be a monk, but but he really didn't understand salvation. And when he began to read this book, and it really began to sink in, his eyes were opened, and he was gloriously saved through the reading of this epistle to Romans. And if, you under, if you've read uh, uh, Martin Luther, you understand that this word was really hard for Luther, okay? The word for, and so I want to talk about this just for a second. 
Martin Luther said that when he read Romans chapter 1, verses 17 and 18, and he saw the word for, which is a word of causation, okay? It's not a contrary word. It's a word of continuity, that there was this great confusion in him. He said, I can't read in verse 117, for the righteousness of God is being revealed. From faith for, for faith, righteousness received by faith, and then I can't immediately read, for the wrath of God is being revealed without beginning to think that the righteousness of God must be revealed in the wrath of God. That's what it must mean, that the righteousness of God is all about his wrath. And so Martin Luther would write this. He said this, I labored diligently and anxiously as to how to understand Paul's words. The expression, the righteousness of God, blocked the way for me. Because I took it to mean the righteousness whereby God is righteous. And he deals righteously in punishing the unrighteous. You see what he's saying? I read the righteousness of God in chapter 1 verse 17 and I saw the four of causation. And I thought, man, the righteousness of God that is revealed is being revealed for the wrath of God. That God's righteousness is all about the pouring out of wrath. And so Luther saw himself as a man under condemnation. And you know what he said? He said, Although I was an impeccable monk, which is interesting, an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner. Therefore, I did not love a righteous and angry God, but rather hated and murmured against him. See, as, as he studied to be a monk, his conception of the righteousness of God revealed in the wrath of God was that God was righteous and that manifests in his wrath and now I'm under condemnation and I murmur and I hate that God because there's no hope in that. There's no goodness in that for me. There's no promise in that. For all that can be seen in the righteousness of God is the wrath of God. But you see the reality, I, I love the word for, I know I circled it, for me it's a really important word. It's not, some people have said, you know, there should be a, an, an Allah there, which is the Greek word for but, a contrary word. So we have two contrary ideas, but it's not. Paul uses the, the word for, the, the word for causation, because there's a causal relationship, but Luther had it all backwards, right? It is the wrath of God that is being revealed from heaven since the creation, for men suppress the truth and unrighteousness, but because of the wrath of God, the righteousness of God must be revealed by faith. You see the connection there? Because all humanity stands condemned. They cannot be justified by their works. There is no hope from them. Therefore, God must reveal his righteousness to be received by faith. Not by anything they could do, for they stand condemned. And so the causal relationship is that the wrath of God necessitates the righteousness of God being revealed by faith. That's the very thing we're going to read about nine months from now. It's coming. It's coming. The wrath of God is the very thing that necessitates that righteousness must be received by faith and not of any work, for we stand condemned. Let me just read to you this last quote, and we'll, we'll wrap up with this. This is how John Murray put it. I love John Murray. One of my favorite authors. I always tell people, they ask, who's your favorite author? I say, there's three Johns for me. Okay, John Owen, John Murray, and, and uh, John Stott. My three favorite authors. John Murray's amazing. Listen to what he said as he was preaching through Romans chapter one. The gospel as the power of God unto salvation is meaningless apart from sin, condemnation, misery, and death. 
This is why it begins with the whole world being guilty before God and lying under his wrath. Now listen to this. Paul was a realist. He wasn't like all humanity suppressing the truth, like nothing to see here. Paul was a realist, and instead of drawing the curtain of concealment, he draws it aside and he opens it to view the degeneracy of human reprobation. We may ask, why? It is upon degradation that the righteousness of God supervenes. And the glory of the gospel is that in the gospel is made manifest a righteousness of God which meets all the demands of our sin at the lowest depths of iniquity and misery. In assessing the exigencies arising from our sin, we will fall woefully short of appreciating their gravity if we fail to account of the wrath of God. You see, the righteousness of God from faith for faith, the thesis statement of this book, is the provision of God's grace to meet the requirements of God's wrath so that sinners under condemnation may be set free. That's the good news. It's the gospel. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are our good and loving Father. You loved us since before the foundation of the world. And you knew that we would fall into sin, but you, our dear Father, our God, had already made a plan. Your plan was perfect in all of its ways. And your plan was to send your Son, Jesus Christ, that you would be declared as right and righteous, the just and justifier. For in your justice, your wrath is poured out and you consume and destroy all rebellion, all sin, all that is contrary to your will and character. And we would have you no other way, for you are God. And you are perfect. But we thank you that you have made a way, not by changing your character, not by changing your word or your promises, but you have made a way not by putting upon us that which we could not bear, but placing it upon your son, that he would go to the cross, bear the wrath that's poured out for your people, suffer for our sin, that your hatred for sin would be put on him, and that he would suffer under the weight, and that he would die and be buried, and that three days later he would raise from the grave and ascend. We thank you, Lord God, for righteousness that is received by faith is the necessary work of God, of you, in answer to your wrath, that we would not anymore as children be under condemnation, but under grace. So Lord God, help us to live in this grace. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, we ask all of this. Amen.